Welcome to Into Theology. I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we are about to start our series in earnest on Augustine's Confessions. We're pretty excited. So we're in chapter one, the very beginning. Oh, book and, one. Book one. And technically, I guess, chapter one. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> um, and uh, we're, we're going to, I don't know if we'll go all the way through chapter one today, but we're at least going to introduce um, the really key ideas in Augustine's Confessions. So with that said, Ian, you wanted to read the whole first section of book one yeah. so we're going to call it book one section one is that the language we're going to use yep that's good okay yeah and it's, it's probably worth noting that because you are using the chadwick oxford university press version i'm using the penguin classics that's edited by pine coffin um so for listeners you might hear us talk like talking about the same sentence it might sometimes translationally sound a little different but we'll always try to refer to we'll always be in a particular book and then we will always reference the section number that it's coming from that we're talking about. But yeah, I think, um, you know, when you read, I mean, it's been amazing. This is now my third time going through uh, cover to cover uh, confessions, but it's been a long time since I've read him. And so uh, just being able to go back to, to this has just been like, wow, what a, what a remarkable book. I mean, we spent so much time in Calvin's Institutes, which is also amazing, but this just has such a different feel and one of the things I kind of noted from it, not only does he quote extensively from the Psalms, this whole thing really kind of feels like the Psalms right. in a way. Like there's like, there's all this human emotion. There's like these kind of like wrestling through issues with like God and uh, very earthy, but very spiritual. And in a sense, it's almost like this opening section here is really going to kind of set the stage, not just for the rest of book one, but for the rest of confessions itself. And uh, there's tons of debate about how is this book structured and, and organized and things like that. But I think that's safe to say. So I'm just going to read this um, right off the bat here. Um, so uh, Augustine begins, he says, can any praise be worthy of the Lord's majesty? How magnificent his strength, how inscrutable his wisdom. And there he's quoting from the Psalms. Uh, Man is one of your creatures, Lord, and his instinct is to praise you. He bears about him the mark of death, the sign of his own sin, to remind him that you thwart the proud. But still, since he is a part of your creation, he wishes to praise you. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you because he made us, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Grant me, Lord, to know and understand whether a man is first to pray to, to you for help or to praise you and whether he must know you before he can call you to his aid. He does not know you, how can he pray to you? For he may call upon some other help, mistaking it for yours. Or are men to pray to you and learn to know you through their prayers? Only how are they to call upon the Lord until they have learned to believe in him? And how are they to believe in him without a preacher to listen to? Those who look for the Lord will cry out in praise of him, because all who look for him shall find him. And when they find him, they will praise him. I shall look for you, Lord, by praying to you, and as I pray, I shall believe in you because we've had preachers to tell us about you. It is my faith that calls to you, Lord, the faith which you gave me and, ma and made to live in me through the merits of your son, who became man and through the ministry of your preacher. And you could just sit forever and just think about those mm -hmm. words. There, there's like a kind of a timelessness to them. Mm. This whole section, I mean, it's funny as you read it, there's something else I noticed, just the idea of or mortality or death being a witness to our sin, just as Paul says, really Yeah. how that kind of begins the idea yeah. of being stirred up to take pleasure in, in praising God being made for him, our heart being restless or not finding peace until it rests in God. 
it's interesting. So one thing I, sh- I think we should just note too is like this whole book is a prayer towards God. Yeah, Whatever else you want to say about that. the genre, it's an yep. address to God. Yeah. Um, it's like a Socratic dialogue, but it's Augustine and God talking, <laughs> yeah. not two other characters. And Augustine seems to hear God speaking primarily through scripture and then occasionally through visions that he recounts. Um, But I think it's hard to know like what the, the the number one thing to highlight is, but it's pretty clear that he felt that he is describing human condition, that we are somehow unstable or not at peace or restless until we have whatever our desires met our pleasure to be satisfied in something. And it's going to be God, he says, because if our pleasure is satisfied in something that is changeable and is here and gone again, whether as Augustine will explore that sexuality or that is the pride and prestige of being a rhetorician or whether that is uh, kind of being a a part of a cool cult like Manichaeism (laughs) or whether that's being a hoity-toity philosopher, whether that's uh, uh, basically stoicism or uh, so-called middle neoplatonism but really just platonism uh, those things are not ultimately going to satisfy you and so augustine i mean this whole story is really him living the the normal human life in dissolution falling to pieces over everything whether that's sexual sin lust all these kinds of things and eventually finding his peace in god which he finds at a climactic moment through the words of a child mm-hmm. out of the mouth of babes. Right. Uh, it's not even his clever brain or some clever intellectual argument. He hears a kid saying, pick up and read. And he goes to the Bible and reads it. Yep. And the, the confessions end much like they begin with the idea of, of rest. So I might just read a little bit of that portion. So this would be chap- uh, book 13 and section really 51 i mean it's, you could read the whole well, thing 30, i have it as i have his 36 sorry you're right yeah, yeah 35 yeah. and following really so i'll read 35 and i might just go through it we'll see lord sure. god grant us peace for you have given us all things the peace of quietness the peace of the sabbath a peace with no evening this entire most beautiful order of very good things will complete its course and then pass away For in them by creation, there is both morning and evening. The seventh day has no evening and no ending. You sanctified it to abide everlastingly. After your very good works, which you made while remaining yourself in repose, you rested the seventh day. This utterance in your book foretells for us that after our works, which because they are your gift to us are very good, we also may rest in you for the Sabbath of eternal life. There also, you will rest in us, just as now you work in us. Your rest will be through us, just as now your works are done through us. But you, Lord, are always working and always at rest. Your scene is not in time. Your movement is not in time. And your rest is not in time. Yet your acting causes us to see things in time, time itself, and the repose which is outside of time. As for yourself, we see the things you have made because they are. But they are because you see them. We see outwardly that they are, and inwardly that they are good. But you saw them made when you saw that it was right to make them. At one time, we were moved to do what is good after our heart conceived through your spirit. But in earlier time, we were moved to do wrong and to forsake you. But you, God, one and good, have never ceased to do good. Of your gift, we have some good works, though not everlasting. 
After them, we hope to rest in your great sanctification. But you, the good, in need of no other good, are ever at rest, since you yourself are your own rest. What man can enable the human mind to understand this? Which angel can interpret it to an angel? What angel can help a human being to grasp it? Only you can be asked. Only you can be begged. Only on your door can we knock. Yes, indeed. That is how it is received, how it is found, how the door is opened. Mm, man. In short, God is, is super temporal, super essential, super all standard things. And yet he has rest in him. And we can find that because he's stable. I mean, I, I, I kind of mentioned earlier, but maybe a really simple way of saying it. The Bible, the Psalms in particular, talk about God as a rock. So why a rock? And that's because in our experience, a rock is, is unchanging. It's just always stable. It's like a fortress. We can rest on it, under it, etc. But that's kind of trying to draw us to God, what he's really like. And God is like a rock because he's stable, unchanging. I mean, sex satisfies one day and not another. Having progeny satisfies one day, but then he lost his only child or only one that we know of. I think it's his only child. Uh, his, his ability to speak is great, but then he um, has a lung condition, I think, in Milan, and he can't speak anymore, at least for a while. I can't remember. I think it's Milan or Rome. I can't remember offhand. All the things that you could pursue in life that would really seem to satisfy your, your soul's thirst, I mean, they don't satisfy it for him. It always needs to be more. Yep. Really until he picks up and reads and learns, I think, from Romans 13, 14, 13. that he must put on 13. So he must yep. put on Christ. So it's, it's a fascinating book. Um, Man. There's so many layers to it. I mean, even just the opening chapter, so many, so many rich layers. Hmm. I, I think I, I would say the story is important. Um, even the idea of the incarnation uh, that's mentioned there, the gift of faith that, that Christ breathes into him through the preacher. <laughs> like, well, it's interesting that you, you, you highlight the preacher there because as he does, uh, there is, and you and I, it was about a year ago, I think, right. That we went through Ecclesiastes mm. and there, like, there's a whole, there's that whole Ecclesiastes feel to this. I think, uh, o- oh, Owen, yeah. actually, John Owen, actually, um, he talks about confessions in, in the Ecclesiastes sort of tradition. Uh, mm. he thinks that it's, he thinks that this whole opening section, uh, is really a commentary on Ecclesiastes 11. Mm. Um, he says that in Pneumatologia, which is pretty interesting. Hmm. But people, this is what's funny about confessions that even as you were reading that last uh, section of, of the whole book, you know, scholars have debated the structure, you know, and uh, whether, you know, like some, some like uh, von Harnack will say that like, he doesn't even know if all of them was written by Augustine. It's kind of like a JDP sort of thing to the confessions. And uh, it's like, I, you can see the unity. You know, like Augustine's not just like kind of piecemeal throwing all this together because sometimes people get worked up because after you from books 11 to 13, you get all this stuff on time and memory and commentary on creation and things like that. But what has he done? You know, he he really kind of starts with God here in the eternal. He kind of comes to the the kind of physical world. You know, he's looking for all of these uh, all the all of his desires are kind of grounded in, as you say, these changeable things. And then the book, in a kind of like you say, like a Platonic or even a Neoplatonic dialogue or ordering of being, kind of moves from the central world back up to the to those things that are eternal, where the good really is. And that's exactly where he, he's asking, you know, because you made us for yourself, our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. And then the whole end of the book is all about Sabbath mm-hmm. and rest in God in that seventh day that's eternal. 
um, that you can see the unity of the book just there and just reading the opening and the closing part. Oh, yeah. And even like book 10, which gets a bit funky. I mean, just the idea of memory. He identifies memory with mind. And this is that higher, the highest part of the soul that can perceive and understand God and think through the past and and understand sense experience. So it's an act. It's an activity. So mind is a faculty of the soul, the high, highest faculty yeah, of the soul. Not your brain, and, per se. Right. Yeah, right. You are not reductionists. But uh, yeah, so, and then mind is really, or sorry, memory is a, a kind of activity of mind, um, a, as it were. There's there one scholar mm-hmm. I was looking at, his, uh, his last name is Blonde, uh, a French scholar. He kind of, he organizes the book according to like these, these activities of mind, where he says that books one through nine are memories of things past, you know, uh, kind of like a Proustian sort of thing. Uh, number, uh, chapter 10 is actually what he calls a, a kind of intuition of the present. And that's why it's like, whoa, what's going on there? And then the, the, the 11 through 13 are sort of like expectations of the future that this guy actually relates all back to kind of memory in the broadest sense, not just past, but past, present and future as an activity of the mind. Now, there's one thing you mentioned that I think we should probably just quickly touch on is that platonic thing, because I would say that, yeah, Augustine uses language that he learned. He's, he's, a, he's an educated Roman. So yeah. he knows Cicero, he knows Plotinus, and he can use language. Like we use the word gravity, even though it's not in the Bible, but just simply because gravity is the way, the, what we call what gravity is. So we, we use common language, but I, I would almost argue as you read this, yeah, he might use that language, but he's doing something I think also very biblical. In other words, Plotinus believed in a, a, a hierarchy of on beings. So there's one intellect and soul. So one is basically God, what we would call God. Intellect is all the things that are true that you can't touch, like love and justice and so on. And then soul is everything else that individual souls within it. So a soul has to, you get really dispersed and you have to go back to oneness. Okay. Well, Augustine maybe uses language similar to that, but he's following the Bible. Like if you think about this, you're created in the garden, Adam and Eve sin, and then they're exiled from life, the tree of life, namely God's presence. That's what it symbolizes. They go east of Eden and the whole story of Genesis is going further east of Eden. And then the tabernacle is constructed and the gate to enter and it's on the east and you leave through the east. The Bible story is, is, is humanity moving away from God and God making a way for them to return. I mean, the word repentance yep. is to return. And so now after, because of what Christ did, he broke down the dividing wall. He destroyed the, the, uh, the cherub with the sword in the, in the east of the garden, made a way back to the tree of life, the Eucharistic gift then we can return. We can repent. I mean, the Bible begins in the garden. We fall away from the garden. Then Genesis 22 is really the garden again, the tree of life. Uh, Revelation 22. Sorry, whatever I said. So I think like sometimes you can see a little bit of that language, just like we talk about gravity, but I actually think that he's following this biblical narrative of falling away from God, the fall, and then returning to God, repentance. God commands all men everywhere to repent. You know, Acts 17. And what he's doing too, again, being more biblical than uh, Platonist is that he's affirming really like he's going to recognize the problems that can be here, you know, with the material creation, but then also fundamentally to the goodness of it, even as he ends with, yeah. with, uh, with it here in terms of this Sabbath rest. And that's why he's got this commentary on creation as a good thing at the end of the book, because he's not going to deny it. Right. So, cause he's, so by the time confessions is written, there's debate over, you know, somewhere between 397 and 401. So that puts him, you know, roughly around say six years since he's become a, uh, I think, I'm not sure if he was a presbyter or if he'd been become a, a co-adjutor bishop already at that point in Hippo Regius, but um 
and and he's already he's in a context within North African Christianity that is shaped by the Donatist controversy. The Donatists are dominant in North Africa at the time. The Catholics are a smaller group. He comes in. He'd been a Manichaean, so the Donatists then don't like him for going into a Catholic church. So they start to attack him. One of the one of the means of attacks is to say you're still a Manichaean. So one of the things I think that he's doing in in confessions is he's actually he's actually showing that I'm no longer a Manichaean. Like this where he, he starts to talk about like say what a Manichaean believes because i think that's the, the missing I, I, it makes sense to me because i know but yeah what they you're right that, no you're totally right yeah so the manichaeans believe certain weird things that are the radical dualists in terms of like there's a duality between spirit and matter everything that's spirit is good everything that's material is not your body is bad in essence body is bad but then in a weird sense then god also kind of has like a weird limited physicality to him i don't know if it's physicality like it's like an infinite bodily. i think it's an infinite uh infinite substance right yeah yeah it's like it's it's weird uh but but then but then evil also has that and they're both equally ultimate you kind of really don't know because they 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 get rid of all of the divine attributes that we would traditionally affirm to god so that he's not omnipotent say so in a sense Uh, our body is bad and a god is not all powerful because he's kind of fighting in this darkness and light battle It's a and, kind, of, kind of Gnosticism between yeah. like you got to be freed from the prison house of your body sort of thing, which also has its antecedents in, in Platonism. That's why I eat apples and I make my uh, my son make a special apple for me to release my divine spirit. <laughs> right, because then, well, actually, the, the highest degree of godness in this big cosmic battle between good and evil, God, you know, yeah. spirit matter, God and evil, is that you, you get like, and light and dark. So like bits of the light fall down to our experience. They get caught up in all these like, you know, like different sorts of fruits and vegetables, the highest degree of which is in melons. So actually what you're saying- Oh, melons, sorry, sorry. Eat those, because then you regurgitate them and then you belch back uh, the good or light or whatever back into the- And Augustine, when he's recounting this stuff, he realizes how dumb it sounds. And he's like- I can't believe I I believe this. this, It sounds stupid, but like, (laughs) I I don't know. That's where I was at. (laughs) I was at that, I'm sorry. And uh, and so I think what he's what he's also doing here is he's he's still going to affirm ultimately the goodness of these things. It's fallen, um, but it's still physically physicality is still good in in light of the critique against him that he's a, some sort of a crypto Manichaean still. Um, and so I think you could see that uh, in here. Um, he also says really cool things about God. I think if you read that section four, all the oh four is that's awesome. cool. That's that's where you you're seeing him as a rhetorician here, right? So uh, he's just written, I think. If I, so I think he's just written uh, de, the first two books of De Doctrina Christianae uh, on mm. Christian teaching. Just before this, he hasn't completed it. He, he actually takes him. He doesn't complete book the fourth book, which is on preaching, until he's been a Christian a minister for about thirty years. Uh, he says, I don't have the right to write on preaching. I don't know what mm. I'm talking about. I could talk to you about rhetoric, but I can't talk to you about preaching. And But you can see the rhetoric, you know, like, I mean, just here, let me read it. You know, he says, what then is the worship of God? Because that's what he's trying to figure out. Like, how do we actually rightly praise you? That's that's what he's asking in this, right? Um, what It's almost like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Do I have to know you to praise you or do I have to praise you to know you? So it's it's as Jason Biasi speaks of his, uh, in his book, Praise Seeking Understanding is what's kind of happening here. And that, that's a book on the Psalms in Augustine. And that's kind of this too, right? Right. And so he says, what then in, in opening number four is the God, I, uh, is the God I worship. Uh, he can be none but the Lord God himself for who, but the Lord is God. Uh, what other refuge can there be except our God? You, my God are supreme, utmost in goodness, mightiest and all powerful, most merciful and most just. You are most hidden from us and yet most present among us. 
the most beautiful and yet the most strong, ever enduring and yet we cannot comprehend you. You are unchangeable and yet you change all things. You are never new, never old, and yet all things have new life from you. You are the unseen power that brings decline upon the proud. You are ever active yet always at rest. You gather all things to yourself, though you suffer no need. You support, you fill, and you protect all things. You create them, nourish them, and bring them to perfection. You seek to make them their own, though you lack for nothing. You love your creatures, but with a gentle love. You treasure them, but without apprehension. You grieve for wrong, but suffer no pain. You can be angry, and yet serenely and on with these, like, I mean, like, it, you could almost hear it. Some have actually wondered if he did the book, and it's like, it's originally written to be heard. And you can almost hear the word uh, in, in that whole section, which is just awesome with all these kind of like paradoxical kind of couplets um, because you really, his point is you can't really comprehend who he is. And it's in the paradox that your mind is starting to kind of try to conceive of things. It's hitting things one against the other, uh, both of which are true, right? Uh, in the mm. couplet. And so it, it's, it's no wonder then that some of the later so-called postmodernists like a Derrida or somebody would pick up on, well, on Augustine and love him so much because he has that same kind of feel, uh, not in a relativistic way as, as, as somebody like that would, but it's that same sort of feel. It's, the text is supposed to bring you beyond yourself somehow. He has a big view of God. I think that's pretty important. Huge. <laughs> and I think book one, it's almost like you're writing a thesis like at the end of your journey because he's saying... The rest that he's finding is really what he's naming right now. It's God, but he, he knows it already. But then you're going to see as we get to like books two through nine in particular, how he really struggles to come to this understanding of God. It, it takes uh, a lot of effort. He has to, he has to hang out with the Manichees who had a really wonky view of figuring out the problem of evil. Evil was, was a real thing, but he comes to find out evil's not God didn't make evil. It's it's not yeah. a real thing. It's a, it's a privation of the good. Privation. Which he gets from Plotinus, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, and then he finds out, you know what? God's actually, it can't, can't be like a thing like we are in the, in the universe. He has to be beyond all that or else he's not that stable thing. Eventually, it'll take him uh, to encounter scripture to find out who this God is. And I think you see that. I mean, these are like, you're not quoting them, but they're Bible verses basically throughout, right? Yeah. Like if you, if you read the book, you'll see like parentheses and the Bible verses are quoted. But when you, when you read it, you don't uh, out loud, you don't see those, but it's, it's so, it's so um, just bathed in Bible. Let me just it's read the thing. Cause he, he, from his early life is, is taught the Bible, right? Like his dad, yeah. Patricius is uh, not a believer until he takes baptism right near the end of his life. As Patrick. Patrick. Yeah. Uh, I, I also spell Monica with the double N as the, as the, the Berber way of doing it. Cause she is a, a Berber background, but. Um, oh, Hey, what, mention that really quick. Uh, Augustine is a Berber. Well, ethnicity is like is Berber, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's, uh, he's there, there, he is Roman in the sense that he's from the, 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 that Northern uh, part of Africa. It's right along the uh, Mediterranean coast. It would be part of the empires from Numidia. Uh, which is in modern day Algeria. Um, so you could kind of think that's another reason why I think Derrida likes him as well as Camus because they're Algerian. Um, but he's, so he's from that kind of region and um, his, his dad is a, is a kind of true blue Roman. His mom though comes from a Berber background. And, uh, and so that's kind of more that kind of tribal people group from there. But I mean, Augustine is through and through a Roman, although when he does leave North Africa and gets to the European continent, 
into places like Rome and Milan and that sort of stuff. He does, even though he's a great rhetorician, one of the struggles that he'll encounter is he's got an accent and, uh, and that kind of like, kind of proves a little bit of that. He's not the purest bread of, of Romans, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, so he, what was my point then? I can't remember what I was just saying about- I don't know, I totally could have. Hey, give me one second. I'm gonna quickly pause it and change my internet so it's, it's faster. I think. It's funny that you say I can remember what I'm saying. I don't remember. Although, ironically, this whole book is about memory in a sense, right? Okay, uh, yeah. Let's talk about that. That might be a good place to, because I think we have to finish here in the next 10 minutes because it's a yeah. class. So how is this book about memory? Yeah, so you're seeing it all throughout. Like, like as we said, you know, books one through nine are memories of these things past. And so uh, memories are kind of like, you could kind of describe them maybe as affections of the mind in a way. And so like, uh, that that's sort of like a, a result of them because you're not just thinking when you're remembering, but there's something more that's happening, right? So that it can, it can incite things like joy or sorrow or desire, which is going to be a huge issue for, for him throughout the whole book. And pain and, so, and pleasure really are the in my view i mean it's 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 the two broad it's, categories maybe yeah yeah and and so he's he's he you're seeing all that and and really this sort of stage like the whole of book one and book two are really kind of what well, he's doing something that's i guess from what i understand is kind of like typically sort of roman to do is that he's looking at uh i, I jotted these down um the two books kind of follow these, there's four kind of basic categories of like of human development that he's looking at here. Uh, there's what's called infantia, pueretia, uh, adolescence, and juventus. And so he's taking us through, starting, oh, yeah. with, starting where he originates in God as the cause of all things, including his own being. And then he's moving from his infancy uh, to being kind of more of a, a, of a juvenile by the end of it. And, and all of these sorts of problems. And he's talking about how, like, even when I'm rejecting you, God, in my infancy, you're still there for me. You're still can protecting me. Can I make me. a practical point on that? Because I, mm -hmm. I think most of us live our life this way. After you're a Christian, you can look back at all the, the you know, the so-called wasted years and think, what was I doing? One thing Augustine shows you is that, well, those wasted years are not totally wasted. In, in other words, one of the themes of this book is that even though Augustine did not know it, God was wooing him, yep. calling him to himself as eternal beauty. And had Augustine not pursued pleasure in sex and, and avoided pain, all this kind of stuff throughout, through his pride of education and so on, he would never had a profound experience of God. And so not that you should ever celebrate your sin, but all the sinful memories that he has and experiences made Augustine who he was. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes for us, it's so easy to become discouraged about our past, but actually God uses all things for good. And even your, even your sinful past, God can turn out to be a, a good thing, not your sin itself, but the result of it all. And I think Augustine is like, cause he got converted. I mean, basically in his thirties, yeah, he's an old right? man. Like, yeah, he, so he, well, I, I can't remember how old he would have been, but like he, 33 uh, or something like that. That's an auspicious age. Um, but yeah, he, uh, by this point, he's, he's gone through all of the, he's gone through his, his uh, um, education in Carthage. He's gone to Milan, Rome and Milan. He's wanted to become a rhetorician and it fails. Uh, by this point, he's just become uh, uh, some sort of a minister. I'm not sure. I can't remember what, what clerical title he had at this point point of re writing but he's in hippo regius and so yeah he's he's a, he's a man he's had a kid um he's gone through horrible love uh, he's been through the death of his mother uh and all that kind of close stuff. friends so, or at least one close friend 
Yeah, his, cl- his close friend. But it's funny, like back to your point, right? In in uh, in book one seventeen, he says, "Let me tell you, my God, how I squandered." I love this. I actually can hear my mother talking to me when I was <laughs> when I was a kid. I squandered the brains you gave me on foolish delusions, uh, right? I wish my foolish delusions were, you know, crying over the death of Dido <laughs> in, uh, yeah. in, in, in <laughs> reading oh, Cicero. Yeah, right. You know, it's like, uh, and it's funny, you know, he's yeah, he's but you went to a Misfits concert, so you're even would, even. Uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Misfits <laughs> in, in Virgil are right up there, you know? Uh, but um, yeah, so he's, he's squandering it in 18. He's going to talk about kind of, he's going to talk about the prodigal son and he's, he's that's really who he is. Right. So mm. uh, he says, you know, this very day uh, you are ready to rescue me, uh, rescue from this fear, fearsome abyss, any soul that searches for you, any man who says from the depths of his heart, I've only eyes for you. I long Lord for your presence. Presence and absence are a big theme here too, right? Uh, for the soul that is blinded by wicked passions is far from you and cannot see your faith. The face, the path that leads us away from and brings us back again is not measured by footsteps or milestones. The prodigal son of the scriptures went to live in a distant land to waste in dissipation all the wealth which his father had given him when he set out. But to reach that land, he did not hire horses, carriages, or ships. He did not take to the air on real wings or set one foot before the other. For you were the father who gave him riches. You loved him when he set out and you loved him still more when he came home without a penny. But he set his heart on pleasure and his soul was blinded. And this blindness was the measure of the distance he traveled away from you so that he could not see your face. So he, there's, there's presence at the beginning and then it ends there in absence with not being able to see the face of God. And he himself is that prodigal. Which He'll is reference. Sort of the- Go on, sorry. No, I was just gonna say he'll reference. He'll make reference to Homer here too. You see something of like, even though he's more of a Virgil guy than he is a Homer guy, you still see something of like the Odyssey where it's like this guy leaves, travels off to a distant place and then returns back home in his Odyssey. And this is Augustine's spiritual Odyssey. And it's God who's cared for him the whole way through. He's right. the father in the prodigal son story. He's the one who's protecting him. He's almost at the point of death. His mother refuses to give him baptism, even though he's pleading as a young boy, please give me baptism. She defers it. It's like, why did that happen? Why did you let me go through all this kind of stuff? And he's like, it's because you were in complete control throughout the whole time and you cared for me the whole time. And I think that presence and absence of God is, is kind of paralleled in our going away from and coming back to him, as Augustine said. And even the whole uh, prodigal son story is away from the father and back. Uh, yeah. And, and so there, there's, a, there's like a deep, there's like a deep story. Like, I mean, it's the Bible story, but it's also each of our stories. Yeah, the Bible and his story is exile from God in return, and it's really our story too. Because he even mentions original sin, I think, in this chapter. But anyways, infant sin. Yeah, it, it's that. It, it's also that, in a sense, again back to the Platonist. It is especially the Neoplatonist. It's like the emanation out and the return back to the one in a kind of sense too, um, but without denying the material, the goodness of the material creation. But there's also tons of original sin stuff in here too, like all like the all that very detailed description he has of, of his childhood. That he's like, I can't remember this, obviously, but people told me what I was like. He also would then have the personal experience of having watched his own son develop. He seems like he would have been a very attentive father because he's really like aware of what the infant Adiodatus would have, was like. His son's dead by the time he's writing this. So that means then like he, there's a lot of memory here. Who dies he at 17 years old. Yeah. He's, a, he's so he's, yeah, he gets baptized with his dad. Right. And so um, there's a lot of this very deep even the white, the, the concubine that he never names, right? Like he's talking about his mother, Monica, she's like breastfeeding him and caring for him. And then like the wet nurse that's doing the same, but he's probably also got the vivid image of having seen this woman herself uh, uh, nursing his, his own son. And yet in all this, he's also talking about how like, 
you know, the son, the, 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 I used to cry out when I wanted food. Was that bad of me? You know, and he started to kind of set the stage for his own sinful indiscretions when he's a young, young kid in his infancy and, and, yeah. and, and setting up a, the doctrine of original sin that's going to be coming yeah. huge for him in the Pelagian controversy. He actually names it uh, original sin in this book. Uh, it's on page 82, but I can't remember that. But my, one thing that's really interesting that I want to note is that sometimes original sin is almost like a club. For Augustine, it's not. It's original. It's our original sin. It's our fault. It's all that you're born into it. But the storyline is still this gracious God who is goodness itself, always yeah. giving goodness, always drawing us to him because he's beautiful, beautiful in the sense of not necessarily physically, but he draws us because of who he is, his goodness and truth and love and so on. His so original sin is more of an admission that we are like the prodigal son, all of us but we need to return to God who is a good father. I think sometimes when we talk about original sin today, it's more like a club because we miss the storyline. And the storyline is, is that you can see in this is, is the story of God calling Augustine and us to our moment of conversion, of returning back to God. And, and one of the ways that he does it is by the very nature of existence and being, right? So like, he's like, you're so close to me because you are being itself. I have existence, which means I have being. Your existence and your essence, your being and your, your, your actual, like who you are, are one thing. It's not like that in me. I'm utterly dependent on you for my own being. And my being is within me because that's what it means to be. But that being is totally dependent upon your own being. So that means you're so close within me and you're always here. And then that's why he's going to uh, close out the whole of, of book one at the very end of, of 20, where he says, my God, in whom is my delight, my glory, my trust. I thank you for your gifts and beg you to preserve and keep them from me. Uh, mm. uh, he says, keep me too. And so your gifts will grow and reach perfection. And I shall be with you myself for I should not even exist if it were not by your gift. So God's, God's a good gift giver the whole way through, even when he's running away from God, the prodigal, God is still there giving gifts. I, I need to read three Bible verses from Paul. Go for it. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God made us verse 27, Acts 17. Why? So that, or that they, mankind should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So sensibly, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Why? Answer verse 28, for in him and God, we live and move and have our being. Hmm. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Augustine is not saying anything different than what Paul affirmed, namely that we are, we some, all of us in some way participate in God's being. There's going to be nuance. You want to be careful how you say that, but there's some sense but, that he's he's near us all of us participation is huge language in this for augustine too yeah. which he's going to draw both from the bible and plato too participation is big for him but sorry i didn't mean to cut you off no no i just think it's important that he's drawing something that's deeply biblical the reason god made everyone is so that they could seek god or made the nations anyways so they could seek god and feel for him right i mean this is the journey of augustine his he goes to the sensible realm where you can see and, and touch and hear and then eventually he gets to God who's being itself, uh, you know, by faith and praise. Yeah. And pr praise, that's the word, right? That's the operative word. And it like, it comes up again and again, especially even in this opening book for praise. Yeah. We're created to praise him. So yeah. I, I think there is, so again, just to reiterate, he uses all the language of the day, like we would use gravity or, or quantum physics or quirks or whatever, but he's also using that language along the biblical story. And I think, 
some people i think maybe miss that i think they just yeah. get they're so into Plotinus, which of course he uses Plotinus. yeah he does yeah but they forget that it's actually the bible story even if he uses language like procession or whatever or yeah. participation yeah any any last words before you go to class no that's great man okay see you next time